Hi, I'm Susan Swain, host of C-SPAN's Q&A, where we spend an hour with nonfiction writers and historians who add context to today's news. In his new book, Not Accountable, activist and best-selling author Philip K. Howard provides a critique of public employee unions and their impact on government services and state budgets. He argues that through collective bargaining and campaign contributions, organizations like the American Federation of Teachers, the Fraternal Order of Police, and others that together represent millions of local, state, and federal government workers have made government more expensive and less accountable to the public. He argues they have usurped decision-making power from elected officials and are arguably unconstitutional. Our conversation will begin in just a moment. Philip K. Howard, you have a brand new book out titled Not Accountable, Rethinking the Constitutionality of Public Employee Unions. Your introduction begins with the story of Derek Chauvin, who was convicted of killing George Floyd. How does his story illustrate yours? The the head of the police in Minneapolis had no authority to manage the personnel in the police force. So she didn't have the authority to terminate Chauvin, who was thought to be sort of an odd guy and tightly wound. And she didn't even have the authority to reassign him. So if you're somebody running a police force, a police being a policeman is a hard job, but you need to be able to judge who has good judgment and who doesn't and who's appropriate to be on the streets with a deadly weapon and who's not. And she didn't. And this person uh, was, was obviously not appropriate. And in that culture where you don't um, have authority over people and people feel they can do whatever they want, then the other cops also don't feel empowered to step in and say that's the wrong thing to do, which is, of course, what happened in that incident with George Floyd when he was killed. Is that these three other cops, who were mainly rookies, I think, stood back and watched. So what is the thesis in your new book? The thesis is that the public employee unions have undermined constitutional governance. We no longer, voters elect mayors and governors and a president who no longer have operating authority over over the machinery of government. You, you, you can't fix a bad school because you can't get rid of the bad teachers or reassign personnel. You can't fix, uh, you can't run transit systems efficiently because of rigid work rules. Um, it's, it, government can't operate the way it's supposed to, and the voters have lost that link. And I argue that that's clearly unconstitutional. The whole point of the Constitution is to put people in positions of authority who can then do a good job or not and be accountable to the voters. And if those people don't have any authority over down the line of accountability, then it doesn't work. How are public sector unions different from trade unions? Completely different. Uh, it's interesting. Um, in, in, a trade, in a trade union context, both the union and the employer have a vested interest in the um, viability of the enterprise, because otherwise the union members lose their job. Uh, government can't move out of town. <laughs> it doesn't, but there's no threat of government going out of business as it is with a, um, you know, with a, with a business. And worst of all, um, in a trade union context, the union and the and the management are basically trying to divide the pie of capital and labor. You know, who gets how much of the profits, basically. So there's a very targeted negotiation. That's not true in 
in the public sector. You can ask as much as you can get away with. And the public, the taxpayers who are paying the bill aren't really seeing what's happening. And probably worst of all, the negotiation isn't arm's length. It's collusive. So it would be illegal under the National Labor Relations Act for management to buy off complicit labor. In the public sector, the way it works is the unions devote huge resources to getting people elected, and then they sit down at the bargaining table and say, what are you going to give me? It's a payoff. It's, it bears no relationship to, to, to private sector bargaining. So why do you believe the remedy for this lies not in the ballot box, people making decisions in state and local elections, but in the courts? Well, I think two, two reasons. One, I think it, it is unconstitutional. The legislatures didn't have the authority to remove the executive power of the president, governors, and mayors, and there's Supreme Court precedent on that. Um, you can't take away executive power in our constitutional system. And secondly, as a practical matter, the unions have become so powerful. This only happened after the 1960s. It almost happened by accident. So it's part of a side effect of the rights revolutions, the unions, public unions saw an opportunity to get, to say, well, we're just, why shouldn't we have rights just like trade unions without really noting the difference? And since they got the authorization to do collective bargaining, they have consolidated the mass of public employees, which is huge. You know, we're talking about 22 million public employees, a third of whom belong to unions, into this, into the largest and most powerful interest group in America. They collect, I estimate, $5 billion a year in dues, most of which goes to political purposes. They are a juggernaut, and anyone who opposes them, they will consolidate national resources and get that person unelected. And there are a lot, and I go through the stories in the book, lots of stories of that. So you, you know, you have to be suicidal if you're a politician to take them on. Well, folks who have been around for a little while, like uh, you and I might remember two fairly public disputes between chief executives and unions, Ronald Reagan and the air traffic controllers right. during a presidential level, and then Wisconsin Governor Scott Walker. Right. So what what does one learn from those two examples? Uh, well, uh, they're different, and those are the two exceptions that prove the rule. Uh, in, in, in Reagan's case... The, the, the air traffic controllers, he tried and tried to make a deal with them, and they just wouldn't make a deal. And they wouldn't agree to any reason. And finally, Reagan said, okay, they've gone on strike. That's unlawful. You're not allowed to go on strike. So they're fired. And anybody who continued on strike got fired, and we muddled through using supervisors as the air traffic controllers, uh, and, and it worked out. So, so Reagan won. The, the case of Scott Walker in Wisconsin is really illustrative. He wanted to uh, take back control of the operating machinery of government. Uh, the unions opposed him. He had the votes. Uh, they, what they did over a course of four years, and I go through the story, is phenomenal. They had 100,000 people. They occupied the Capitol in, 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 in Madison, Wisconsin. Um, the, the Democratic legislators all left the state so they wouldn't have a quorum for the vote. He won anyway. So then they organized, this is all costing millions and millions of dollars, the unions organized a recall election, put national resources into getting it overturned. Walker then fought that and won, 
And then they had a Democratic DA indict Walker for a crime, for allegedly misusing the funds to oppose the, the, um, uh, the, the recall election, which was bogus, and the, ultimately the Wisconsin Supreme Court threw it out. But that was four years in which he couldn't do anything, basically, except fight the unions. So that's what it takes to win. I want to talk a little bit about you and your, your philosophy. So your first book, Death of Common Sense, is about 25 years old, and it was a New York Times bestseller and other bestseller lists. Um, I'm wondering how this book is different and, and how your philosophy has evolved over time. Well, I mean, some could say I only have one idea. <laughs> and the only idea I have is that only people make things happen. So you need to give, whether it's officials or people who are not officials, people room to take responsibility and be accountable for how they do. And the death of common sense basically argued that by trying to make law precise with thousand-page rule books, we had created a form of central planning. That, so the people, instead of getting the job done, went around in the day with their noses in rule books, and they didn't do the job. They did a bad job rather than a good job because the, there was only one correct way to do things. Um, and legal processes have become so long, uh, which still is true. Uh, I've been very involved in infrastructure permitting, working with the Senate the last few years to try to streamline infrastructure permitting. Well, you need a theory of authority of who decides, okay, what are the important environmental issues to study? How do we draw the line on, on having all that happen within a year or two rather than 10 years or 20 years? You, you need a theory of authority to actually give the permits to build the high-speed transmission lines to get green energy from the Midwest wind farms to the cities, you know, that sort of thing. And so we just don't have that system. This book is unlike my other books because it's, I'm really saying that there's an evil force at work and they've taken control of the operating machinery of government. So this is much more of a targeted um, attack on a group which for their own interest and I believe with an unbelievable disloyalty to the public good have made public services cost two or three times what they worth, created police forces that are untrustworthy, lousy schools that can't be fixed, etc. So this is an indictment. So it's a very different, but it ultimately goes that back to the same point, which is the people we elect have to have authority to make judgments and then be accountable to voters. And it all boils down to people and whether people are doing a good job or not. And in our constitutional uh, framework, that starts with the people we elect. So you've illustrated that the unions are popular, 22 million federal work, uh, sorry, public service workers, and about a third of them belong to unions. Right. Um, and they are vocal and participants. What are you expecting the reaction to this book is going to be? Um, well, I'm expecting that they're going to hate the book and they're going to say terrible things about me and the book and fight it as much as they possibly can. I mean, this is, I'm, I'm, I'm attacking their empire. So, so of course they're going to fight. But I'm hoping that I'll get support from parents, uh, people who want a better system of criminal justice and policing, and people who understand that if we can marshal public resources in a more... Uh, efficient way that we will have all these resources where we can deal with lots of issues that we're not dealing with, like climate change and homelessness and 
you know, income inequality. There are many things we could use public funds for. Every public dollar involves a moral choice. So why do we tolerate contracts that everyone knows cost three times what it ought to cost to, to do a basic job? Trash collection in New York costs twice what, what um, private carters charge. Same in Chicago. Uh, the MTA work rules probably cost three times what they would if a private company were doing the same repair job. So what drives this passion for you? You know, I, you know, I got my start working at the Oak Ridge National Lab when I was 18 years old. I was the gopher to, uh, I mean, it's a complete luck, uh, to, to a Nobel Prize winner called Eugene Wigner, who was a Manhattan Project person. And, and one of the central themes that Wigner had was basically that, that, that you can't think through all problems. People have to take responsibility, engage in trial and error, adapt, you know, and, and people are all different. And we all do different things in different ways. Every husband and wife learns that quickly. Uh, and so, uh, so, so you need to have a system that, that honors human agency without letting people do whatever they do. You have people be accountable. Anyway, I, and we've created a system of government that doesn't work. And I was happy enough being a lawyer and a civic leader in New York City through the 1980s, save Grand Central Terminal, things like that, which I was involved in. And, and I kept looking at my friends who were in government, and they couldn't do what they knew made sense. And so I didn't set out to write the death of common sense. I actually set out to answer a question. Why can't people in government do what they think is right? And I, I've been into it. I hired an intellectual historian to give me a tutorial on, you know, political philosophy, and eventually that became this. And so I'm still on it. You describe yourself as a radical centrist. What does that mean to you? Well, it means that I don't think that we can get there from here. It's radical in that the systems we've created since the 1960s are anti-human. They cause failure and frustration. They lead to extremism in candidates like Donald Trump and, you know, and not only in America, but in other parts of the world as well. We need to create a system that honors humans on the ground. And so we have to replace the current system with a simpler system that's more goal-oriented, that gives people room to take responsibility. So that's radical. But I'm centrist in that I believe in government. So central to my idea which is different than most conservatives, is that officials have to have authority. They have to have more authority to do their jobs. The cop needs to be able to use his judgment. The teacher needs to be able to adapt to the situation in front of her. She certainly needs to have authority to maintain order. Nobody's going to learn if some kid's allowed to get away with disrupting the classroom. So, um, so it's centrist because I believe in government. It's radical because I think we need to kind of reboot the system. So it's almost three decades that you've been out. This government has continued to grow in size and complexity. <laughs> right. Yeah, so do you feel you've been making a difference? Well, uh, that's right, a singular history of failure. I, I, uh, <laughs> I uh, uh, well, the, um, so the recent infrastructure bills include reforms that I proposed. So there are things... Um, that, uh, that, that we've done that, that have resulted in law. 
too few in my judgment. Uh, uh, I had a joint venture with the Harvard School of Public Health a few years to create special health courts to solve the medical malpractice problem, which leads to more costs through defensive medicine and all that. And Harry, we had a, Obama was for it. We, um, and the day before the Affordable Care Act went to vote, the provision in the bill that was going to provide for pilot projects for health courts was taken out by Harry Reid because the trial lawyers wanted to take him out. So I constantly butt up against these interest groups like the trial lawyers groups or the public unions and such. But um, history would say that change happens not slowly but uh, in big gulps. Uh, the political scientists call it punctuated equilibrium. Things go along for a long time, like Ceausescu remains dictator decades after people hated him, and then all of a sudden he falls off a cliff and it's not there. In this country, the last time we had big change was the 1960s. Before that was the 30s. Before that was the Progressive Era. Before that was the Civil War. It was like that. So it's the occasional ticks where you have real changes in how things work. We're overdue for a change. Do you feel like we're on the precipice of it post-COVID and with economic uncertainty? Uh, yeah, maybe. I mean, people, certainly the, the Paul Light, who's a, a political administration professor whom I do, with whom I do a lot of work, his surveys suggest that American public is hungry for, for, for what they know is structural overhaul, but neither party is presenting a vision of it. You know, neither party. So the, the Democrats will have goals, which I, many of which I agree with, you know, climate, deal with climate change, but they don't have any view of how you make government deliver. And the Republicans are simply running against the Democrats. You know, they just, you know, run against AOC or whatever. Um, you know, there are some forces in the Republican Party. Uh, Mitch Daniels is thinking about running for the Senate, apparently, uh, who who are what I'll call centrist Republicans. You know, I'm, not, I'm, a, I'm a registered independent. So, but, but, uh, but maybe there could be a political movement that's a radical centrist movement, which is l let's take care of people who need to be taken care of. Let's deal with the social and climate changes we have in our society. But let's do so effectively, and that requires rebooting the system. So it, it's interesting. I was thinking back uh, to the Clinton administration when Al Gore was vice president. Remember, he was out with his hammer right. on sets, was reinventing government. So there have been periodic, on both sides of the aisle, efforts at reform. Why, why not? Well, I, you know, I worked very closely with, with, with Al Gore um, uh, at that time. And, uh, and his idea, a lot of those ideas were fantastic, actually. And, and some of them happened. They didn't really stick. But the place where they blinked was was public unions. They wouldn't take on the civil service. So ultimately, you can't get rid of a thousand-page rule book and replace it with a 50-page set of goals and principles unless the people you're giving more authority to can be accountable. And if they can't be accountable, it's like a law of physics. Pretty soon you're going to have rules telling people exactly how to do things because no one's going to trust anyone else. So without accountability, you're never going to get authority, and they wouldn't take on the, the public unions. So uh, you uh, share with readers uh, both statistics and history, and I want to spend a little time on both because they give us some context for your arguments. Let me start with uh, 22 million people. We have a, a chart that we did from numbers in your book. Of those, se about 7 million active public employee members, one-third, as you suggested, right. uh, to the two teachers' unions, 4.6 million, 
the American Federation of State, County, and Municipal Employees, 1.3, Service Employees Union, 1 million, Fraternal Order of Police, 357,000, American Federation of Government Employees, 300,000, and the Treasury Employees Union, 89,000. See how long I've been in Washington? I know what all those acronyms stand for. That's right. So uh, what, what should we take away from the fact that only one-third of the possible members actually have joined? Um, actually, those numbers demographically um, uh, uh, disguise the fact that in state and local government, the what I'll call the unionized states are like New York, California, Massachusetts, New Jersey are very heavily unionized. We're talking about two-thirds or 70 percent. So, so those are overall national figures, but in fact the concentration is in certain states. So, so there's a much higher, higher percentage in most states. The federal government, um, collective bargaining is, I think, um, roughly 25 percent of the federal government. Um, and it's, it's, it's in certain kinds of occupations, not most occupations. And the federal government collective bargaining does not include bargaining over salary or benefits. So it's a... They operate under the GS system. So yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's a, it's, a very, it's a very heavy layer of civil service. I mean, one of the reasons why there was never any... You know, the origin story of public unions was never... They were never needed. We had civil service systems. There were no scandals you know, associated with, with the mistreatment of public employees. They just wanted it, right? Whereas in the progressive era, labor unions were absolutely necessary. We were killing workers in the mine. We were killing workers in the factories. I mean, it was a, the origin story could hardly be, 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 be different. But in any event, the federal government, the civil service system is so strong and powerful. And in many respects, I think... Good. I mean, I'm a pro-civil service person, but civil service was supposed to be the merit system. <laughs> you know, the system we have now is the anti-merit system. You can't, 99% of all federal employees get a fully successful rating. You can't get, you know, it's a, again, exceptions prove the rule, but, but basically you can't get rid of anybody for performance. These are also national percentages, uh, percentage of public employees belonging to union, 25% of federal employees, 30% of state, and more heavily, local. Yeah, that's right. Local government. And again, those are concentrated uh, in in the big, uh, mainly blue states. So we're talking, talking, if you you put those figures and you say, how many of those people are in New York, Massachusetts, California, you know, Oregon, uh, Illinois, you know, you're talking about really big percentages. So if you looked at performance of government in the heavily unionized public sector states versus the less so, what do you learn? Well, in the case of Wisconsin, where we went from one to the other after Scott Walker won his battle, uh, billions per year were saved. And, and so the performance by several metrics is that government improved. And, and by the way, the, the Democrats who've come into office since Scott Walker haven't wanted to put it back. You know, I mean, people, uh, um, I know a lot of Democratic politicians, they would love not to have to ask, you know, beg the unions for approval to do anything. You know, if you want to run the transit system in New York, but they can't say it because they're too powerful. And, and so... Uh 
you chose Mitch Daniels to write the introduction for your book. He has an example of a decision he had as governor of the state of right. Indiana. What was his? Experience? Well, his uh, collective bargaining in Indiana was a um, was not by statute. It was by executive order, so the governor could change it. And he was under political pressure not to change it. The unions will get upset and all this stuff. But he did change it. But he didn't get rid of collective bargaining entirely. I, I think in Indiana they're allowed to bargain over over salary, for example. But they can't argue. But they can't bargain over work rules. I mean, by far the most important thing about public management is the ability to deploy resources well, to make judgments about who's doing, who's a good teacher, who's not. You know that sort of thing. It's management. Um, if I were put in charge of, of redoing public service, which I think we need to do in this country, and I used to talk with Paul Volcker about, I mean, it's not like I'm alone in saying this, um, but if I were in charge of it, I would materially increase the income of certain kinds of professionals, teachers, for example, and, and uh, higher-level federal employees, but you wouldn't have pension scams where people double their pension by spiking of overtime in the last year. You, you wouldn't have work rules that that allow teachers to say during COVID, oh, well, nothing in our contract about remote learning, so we don't have to teach remotely when the kids have nobody to teach them. So then you have a separate negotiation that goes on for months about whether teachers have to pitch in to educate America's children. I mean, it's just, it's just unbelievably selfish in the way they handle that. They didn't go back to school for two years. I mean, with, with long-term effects on the children of America because their contract allowed them to do that. You alluded to the interesting history of this, and uh, I, I like history, so I want to spend a little time with it because I know our audience is interested in history, too. So uh, bear with me because you, you, you play this out in the book for your readers. So the, the, the debate over public jobs is as old as our history. Uh, right. The spoils system right. was through most of the 19th century. And you talked about the big reforms in the progressive era. So how did that start the trajectory? What happened? Well, you know, it's really interesting. So, so, so we form a government. The Federalists are in charge, and they like to stay in charge, right? And f for whatever reason... People come into office, they couldn't get rid of the Federalists who were running Washington at that point. So Andrew Jackson gets elected as a populist president, and, and he says, we're going to have a good government reform where whoever's elected gets to pick who works for government. And that was thought as a good government reform. You're going to be, it was more accountability. But then within a nanosecond, it became the spoil system. And so whoever gave a contribution got a job. So it became this kind of payoff where, where public jobs became a property right. And people tried to get rid of it for decades, and they couldn't get rid of it. It's the same thing is happening now. You know, it's like the status quo, the inertia keeps things going. Until finally um, Garfield was assassinated by a disappointed job seeker. And that was the scandal that propelled the Pendleton Act of, 1980, of 1883, which created a merit system. It was not a system of tenure. It was a system of neutral hiring. So there would be tests. The top takers on the test would, would be eligible to be picked for the job. And that meant the jobs weren't handed out as a property right. They weren't spoils anymore. 
But that quickly got gamed too. So then the next president came in and said, gosh, you can get permanent jobs. I'm going to have all my friends get permanent jobs. So they blanketed in all these permanent jobs, right? And then Teddy Roosevelt comes and he says, wait a minute, this is crazy. We can't, this is not, the merit system is not permanent jobs. So then he got another rule put in that kept, um, that allowed the president to hold people accountable, but there was a speed bump, called the Lloyd LaFollette Act in 1912 codified this. There was a speed bump where if somebody thought they were fired for political reasons or partisan reasons, they could complain to this independent commission, Civil Service Commission, which would have authority to overturn the decision. But it wasn't a trial. It was just a judgment, you know, investigation of judgment. So that happened, and things kind of were okay, stable for a while, and then, um, and then the sixties happened. Everyone oh, had rights. Don't get rise. to the sixties yet, because they're really important. In 1936, you write that right. fa- political activities by federal employees in the 36 Congress got sufficiently alarmed that they right. enacted the Hatch Act. <laughs> right, sorry, we that's hear right. we hear about the Hatch Act all the time today. So I wanted you to explain. Right, it. and so well, I'm sorry. So it's. it's, it's one of the things, and the political scientist Daniel DeSalvo has written about the history of this, one of the unintended effects of civil service is it created a natural power block, interest group, because now people had permanent jobs. Well, we have, what, what do we have in common? We're all public employees. Let's unionize and get together. But they didn't have the right of collective bargaining. So it was a, an advocacy, advocacy group, but not a but not a power group. But nonetheless, they were able to get together enough that politicians then said, let's, let's use this block to help ourselves get elected. And that's what happened in the 36 election. FDR and his guys. They sent federal you know, employees out Federal employees out there handing out leaflets and stuff, you know. And so, wait a minute, this is, this is crazy. You know, you've got this huge captured body of people you know, playing politics to keep the incumbent in office. So then they, the, the Congress passed the Hatch Act, basically make it, making but, it illegal. What, the Hatch Act is still in force today. What does it do? Uh, it, it, uh, the, the Hatch Act used to uh, eliminate organized political activity. It was substantially weakened in the 1990s and then again in the Obama era. So that it still prohibits certain kinds of organizing, but not most. About FDR, you write in your book that he opposed public union collective bargaining. And you also say, at the other side, he demonstrated the potential for public service through the Civilian Works Administration. So talk about him. Yeah, so, you know, FDR was interesting. He obviously was a pro-labor president, pro-labor union, the National Labor Relations Act authorizing, you know, kind of federal authorization of private company unions was passed during his administration and such. He... um, But he was very opposed to public sector bargaining because of the conflict of interest. You know, public sector, people who work for the the public swear a duty of loyalty to the public. And as we see with the private unions, these negotiations are all in derogation of the public interest. They're not somehow advancing the public good to make things cost three times as much. Um, So so he understood that and said in in a carefully framed letter to Congress, where they were talking about public public unions, he said that the, tra- the process of collective bargaining cannot be transferred to the public sector. He was just completely direct about that. But his administration also showed 
demonstrated kind of what I've been calling for, which is more authority by, by officials. So the Civilian Works Act, the CWA, uh, in 1933 or four, um, uh, authorized public jobs you know, to, for public works in, in, in the height of the Depression. Harry Hopkins was given the job of being in charge. The act was passed in November. By the end of December, Harry Hopkins had hired 2.6 million people. So think about that. I mean, that's incredible. I mean, it would, it would have taken you know, decades <laughs> under current process because Harry Hopkins had the, had the foresight to say we're just going to make it happen. We're going to, we're going to. I'm going to call up so and so in Indiana and say, okay, you've got a hundred thousand jobs. Give me the projects and figure out a way to do it. And he kept delegating down the chain, and, and it happened. All these people had work. It was fantastic. Whereas when the stimulus was passed in 2009 during the Great Recession and was supposed to be used for infrastructure. Uh, almost none of it was used for infrastructure because, as, as President Obama said, he discovered there was no such thing as a shovel-ready project because these processes go on for a decade you know, or longer. What FDR would have done is said, that's crazy. We need to spend the money now. So I want a one-page statute to go to Congress authorizing me to cut through those processes along the following lines to make this happen. But no one in the Obama White House had that idea because we've kind of lost the idea that governing is actually not about just complying with rules and stuff. It's about people making things happen. So two more stops on the history tour of, of public sector unions that interested me. You write that after World War II, the party bosses still held power in big cities, Tammany right. Hall, etc. And uh, or for executives in those cities, mayors and the like, organized public unions were a better alternative. That's right. It's right. So the probably the first collective bargaining um, law that was authorized was put in place by by Wagner in New York because um, because he thought that the public unions would be a more pliable interest group than Tammany Hall and and by uh, giving them collective bargaining then all the power of the jobs and all that sort of stuff Mm -hmm. went to them Mm I don't know whether they were more pliable or not. I don't know how bad Tammany was. There are books on on the on the party machines that argue that they were actually quite effective in their own corrupt way, you know, in making things happen. But um, uh, but that was a you know a deal a deal with the devil that the politicians made. So last is something you alluded to earlier, and that's John F. Kennedy's executive order in 1962, which changed everything. What did he What did he sign? Uh, Executive Order 10988 was um, was authorized by was issued by President Kennedy after receiving truly the most shallow report, baseless report that has ever been written in the federal government, which has saying something. It was shared by Arthur Goldberg. <laughs> it said we need. It's only fair to authorize collective bargaining. This will make government more efficient and effective and work better. No one, even then, believed that was true, and so it was a political payoff. You know, they'd gotten uh, the unions had helped Kennedy eke over the line in the '60 election, and 
he needed to he needed to give he was under a lot of pressure to give them something so what's been the trajectory since then in the late 60s still in the rights revolution um new york uh was under pressure from the organized you know unions was under pressure to to authorize collective bargaining they uh, appointed a um a uh, University of Pennsylvania labor law professor named George Taylor to do a report on it and Taylor said it would be okay but only if you meet these conditions the legislature you have to maintain accountability to elected officials otherwise he suggested it would be unconstitutional <laughs> and and they authorized it but didn't do would not with the strings that the Taylor suggested um seven other uh, states and cities had similar reports similarly saying you can do collective bargaining but it can't preclude management prerogatives it has to be ultimately approved by legislatures they had all these conditions none of which happened so um so collective bargaining happened in the public sector without acknowledging what the experts said needed to happen in order to make them constitutional and they've just grown you know the their power uh, well I go through this in the book but you know their power their political power is extraordinary if you cross them even a little bit they will get you out of office i mean you you'll have you as a state legislator will have millions of dollars of national money spent against you to get you out of office I have a couple of clips and to the point about politics um Let's listen to David Cox. This is a couple of years back in the, uh, in the election cycle. <clears throat> Excuse me. He was president, a national president of the American Federation of Government Employees uh, and just involved in supporting candidates. Let's listen to how he presents it. I make a promise to you today. I make a promise to Reverend Al Sharpton and the National Action Network. AFGE and the labor movement are going to be out there. We are going to be joined at the hip every day of our lives. We are going to fight because, brothers and sisters, the American labor movement and the American Federation of Government Employees shall not, shall not be moved. Not now, not ever. And anybody that tries to do it to us, we're opening up one gigantic can of whoop ass on every one of them. Thank you. <laughs> right so that's why so imagine if you're you're an elected official and the unions uh gave you a huge amount of money and hundreds or thousands of campaign workers to get you elected and then somebody like that shows up and says okay payback time what are you going to give me what do they give them they give them uh they can't give them everything because the public would only take so much so they give them pension benefits that are not affordable in the future that will only kick in after the politicians out of office they give them 200 page collective bargaining agreements that effectively give them a veto over how the offices run literally you can't you're not allowed under union contracts if you're a a, a government supervisor to go into a, a a worker and say how would you run this office better or how would you do your job better that's that's not allowed in the collective bargaining agreement that's superseded you have to ask the union rep that so you have to deal with someone like this for daily decisions it's 
it's amazing government runs it all. So uh, with regard to retirement benefits right now, what is the size of the nation's unfunded retirement benefits liabilities? You know, I don't have that on the tip of my head. It's, it's a lot more than we can afford. Yep. I mean, the big states are, well, the big states and Social Security as well, actually. That's not a union problem. That's a government funding sure. problem. But the big states are functionally insolvent. I mean, there's no way that Illinois and some of the other states can claw their way out of this hole. Is New York State one that does not have a pension liability issue? Uh, it has an issue, but they've actually allocated funds in recent years to uh, so that it's not, you know, on the so it's not on the precipice. So you've got one of the most heavily public sector in, uh, unionized right. states, but they don't have an unfunded liability pension problem. Uh, not as much of one, but they have a public. They have a budget crisis. We have a. We can't afford the Metropolitan Transit Administration. We, I mean, they're. Uh, huge unfunded obligations, there just don't happen to be pension ones, that that can only be solved ultimately by, or at least in part, by, by running these services better. And they don't have the authority to do that. So in addition to electing your own boss, which is one of the critiques you give of public unions, you <laughs> right. also have discussed the lack of accountability and the negotiated prerogatives. I wanted to put the other side of the coin on Randy Weingarten, because teachers' unions are one of the prominent examples in your books. Right. I think everyone watching this knows Randy Weingarten, longtime president of the AFT. Um, and here she is speaking about the role of teachers' unions. Our members see that the union means that they have, that it's a vehicle, it's a voice for them to be able to, in their classroom, express themselves. It is a voice so that they can get uh, a better wage. It is a voice so that they can actually get better health care. And it's a voice for communities so that we can get the investments that we need in schools. We have lots and lots of Republican members who want a voice at work. And that's what unions do. Particularly in the past few years, uh, I'm going to add to that because this was in 2018, with the number of violence incidents in schools uh, and the, uh, the actual um, concern for the safety of students and teachers, that's another issue that would be on the table by collective representation. If there were no collective representation, how would those issues get addressed? Well, I had a joint venture with the Teachers Union 10 years ago with the Bloomberg administration to address discipline in New York City schools. So I've worked with the Teachers Unions to, to do that, and it's a fair point. But it's not, it, it's not mainly a collective bargaining point. It's a, it's, a, uh, it's a teacher authority and funding point. You basically need to take away processes that have been put in place that are similar to unions where there's kind of a, in effect a trial whenever you send a kid home or something and and create alternative resources within schools for the troublemakers to go. And so you need resources to deal with it. Um, but, you know, before the collective bargaining, the, the National Education Association was a union. It was like the American Bar Association. I mean, it was a professional group that advocated for a variety of better things for schools and teachings, and it was, by all accounts, reasonably effective. What collective bargaining did was was remove the authority of principals to make basic judgments about 
quality and such. I mean, Randy Weingarten, whom I know and have, you know, friendly enough relationship with, at least used to, uh, um, and I would agree that there, there's too much bureaucracy in schools and such, but the answer to that isn't to let teachers or the unions do whatever they want to do or to take away the authority of managers, is to actually give more authority to everybody at every level so that teachers have more freedom, uh, principals have more freedom than to judge how the teachers are doing. And the unions are not for that. I mean, the proof is in the pudding. COVID comes along, the teachers' union refused to let them go back to the classroom. The damage has been irreparable to the children in that certain groups of children, particularly underprivileged children in that period. They're not for better schools. They're for themselves. On the issue of having a voice at the table during elections, would a counter-argument by the unions be pro-union groups, uh, the Chamber of Commerce, right. uh, trade unions, I mean, uh, uh, business PACs, individual contributors representing, right. all have a voice at the table. Why shouldn't we? How would, would you say to that? Well, first of all, I mean, they could and they did have a voice at the table when they were a professional group, the same way at the National Education Association. But there's, uh, and I'm not fond of money in politics. I would get rid of it entirely. Uh, but, but when special interests come to Washington and ask for a tax break or a favor or a law in the vast sea of government, they're getting some slice that is better for them and often unjustified. What the public unions have done is go to government and take over the entire operating machinery of government so that nothing that government can do, or almost nothing, can be done effectively. The schools can't be run. So it's not, it's a difference, uh, in huge difference in scale. The difference between a favor and, and not letting government run the MTA, the schools, the fire department, the police department, anything effectively, it's just a difference, it's exponential. It's a thousand to one, number one. Number two, Public employees are different than all those other groups. They owe a fiduciary duty of loyalty. They swear an oath to serve the public. And these unions, without room for reasonable disagreement, and I go through this in the book, are negotiating in ways that harm the public. On the national level, a coalition of senators and House members on the Democratic side of the aisle have introduced legislation called the Public Service Freedom to Negotiate Act. We're going to listen to Senator Maisie Hirono of Hawaii uh, talk about why they think it's important. We know the public sector workers. They are our families. They are our friends. These are people who are serving our communities, educating and nurturing our children, keeping us safe and caring for our families. They deserve our support and protection. It's why we are introducing our bill today, the Public Service Freedom to Negotiate, Negotiate Act, which reaffirms every public sector worker's right to join a union and bargain collectively with their employees for better wages and working conditions. And it sets federal minimum standard that every state Every state in this country must meet to provide these basic rights to our public employees. Well, with Republican control of the House, it's probably not going to be reintroduced this year. But if an act like this passed, how would it change the equation? If an act like hers passed? Mm -hmm. Well, first of all, I think it would be unconstitutional. Secondly, under the federal constitution. Secondly, she's, she's saying nice words, 
but they're belied by the facts. And that statement was made in the context of the Supreme Court Janus decision, which uh, held that that a state couldn't force a public employee to pay agency fees to a union, even if they weren't a member of the union voluntarily. So th this was a re reaction to the Supreme Court decision in, in Janus. But her statements about what unions have done are just counterfactual. Um, but but if you wanted to step back again and say, well, uh, if I were in charge or if you were in charge, you know, what would it look like? Well, you want a system in which people feel pride and dignity. You want a system that pays people not just fairly, but that honors them for their service to the country. I think, again, I think teachers in many places are woefully underpaid and should be paid more. But you can't have pride in an organization where there's no accountability. No accountability. When you know performance doesn't matter, it's like uh, taking, taking the air out of a balloon. You know, it's, it's organizational psychology 101. So, you know, why, why should I try? They aren't trying, that sort of thing. Teachers talk about this all the time. The Volcker reports talked about how discouraging it is for federal employees to work in places where other people don't pull their weight. You have to have accountability in order to have a vigorous and dignified, you know, public service. And so, those were just words. So let's move on to your remedies, which you find, as we said in the beginning, in the courts rather than not. So what are the constitutional challenges that you see as a possible route to remedy? Well, there's a basic constitutional doctrine that government can't cede sovereign, give sovereign power to a private person. If I were in charge of Congress, I couldn't say, okay, now we're going to give... Um, um, the power of policing without accountability to this, you know, paramilitary group or something. We couldn't do that. You have to maintain control over the sovereign services of government in order for them to work. So what's happened is that we've ceded, through these bargaining agreements, we've ceded sovereign power to, um, to the unions. They have a veto over how things work. And so... Um, you can't hold anybody accountable. I mean, literally, I mean, it's basically no accountability. So, and democracy is a process of accountability, just to remind ourselves, all it is is a process of accountability. We elect people, we don't think they do a good job, we elect someone else. It's just about accountability. If there's no accountability down the line, then democracy is just a kind of a charade. It's a, we're electing figureheads who don't have authority to, to, to run things. So there are several specific provisions of the Constitution that address this. Article 2 uh, provide, for the federal government provides executive power to be vested in the president, and lots of Supreme Court cases have said Congress can't take away fundamental executive power, including the power to dismiss people. So that's, a, that, so that's one provision. For state and local government, there's a provision in Article 4 called the Guarantee Clause, that provides that the United States shall guarantee to every state a Republican form of government. And what that means, according to James Madison, who talked about it a lot during the constitutional debates, is that, is that a, a state can't give to a group of aristocrats or to any, quote, favored class governing powers that are not subject to the vote of the voters. And a Republican form of government means that Voters elect an official, and that official has authority to run government. And so 
I'm arguing, I think it's sort of almost self-evident, that voters elect officials who don't have authority to run government because of these public union collective bargaining agreements. There is a constitutional hurdle I have to overcome, which is the four Supreme Court cases that have addressed the guarantee clause have held that it's non-justiciable. It involves political questions that ought to be decided by a legislature. But I argue, and I think I'm right, that this case is not uh, a political question like, in one case, which state constitution was more Republican than another. Uh, This case involves operating authority. Who has authority to, whether it has authority to fire a bad policeman? Uh, That's not a political question. That's a question of who has management authority. That's a structural um, question. So... I don't. I think the Supreme Court ought to take it, and but I do have to overcome that hurdle. Two questions that come to mind: uh, with if there was a restriction on political activity by public sector unions, wouldn't there be a free speech question attached to that? Um, no, n- n- not any more than there was with the Hatch Act, and the Supreme Court upheld the Hatch Act on several occasions. I, I quote the decisions. Um, I, I think. We're not trying to get rid of the political speech of a public employee. I think what uh, raises constitutional issues of loyalty is when public employees organize politically to change the policies of government for their own benefit. And I think that should be disallowed. The other question that came to mind is that most of these decisions are state level. Uh, recognizing unions of the public employees of the state and municipalities. Isn't there a federalism question that the court would have to overcome with that? Well... The powers enumerated to the... the uh, yeah, uh, now, well, the Constitution, Article 4, says that the United States, it, it addresses the issue, will guarantee a Republican form of government. You can't give away your governing authority to any private group, such as the union. That's what the federal constitution says. So, so that overcomes, there is no federalism question because, the, because federalism doesn't go there. Any, even any more than interstate commerce, you know, in, um, well, interstate commerce, the federal government has to be involved. But the, um, the, the constitution, and Madison spoke to this, specifically says the one thing we can't tolerate in this new union is giving governing power to people who are not accountable to voters. So you acknowledge that there are some constitutional hurdles that you have to overcome to pursue this process. What do you see as a path forward? Well, I think the path forward is first to make people rethink something they've assumed was just a state of nature, you know, well, unions are just there, they're like other unions, they're not. But, and, and to see the harm that has been caused. So, you know, I, I'd like people to see this as, as a version of Upton Sinclair's The Jungle. Look what's happened to government. It can't work. They're burning money in inefficiency because of these inexcusable, unjustifiable restrictions uh, on, on, on the way government operates. So I think people need to understand the harm that's been caused to the public. And then I'm already talking to several law firms and public interest law groups about bringing um, 
having state officials bring an action to declare the collective bargaining agreements unconstitutional. So you need you need a vehicle to get yeah, it before the court. Yeah. Well, uh, that's it for our hour, which has gone by very quickly. Uh, the the name of the book is Not Accountable: Rethinking the Constitutionality of Public Employee Unions. Philip K. Howard, thank you very much for spending uh, this time with us today. Great to be with you, Susan. Thanks for listening to C-SPAN's Q&A. And subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts so you'll never miss an episode. And while you're there, please take a minute to rate and review us. You can also send us an email about Q&A at podcasts at c-span.org. Send me your questions, your comments, or ideas. Your feedback is welcome. 